I think the microphone sounded much better today. You know? Congratulations to whoever put that together. We've had our issues with technology, haven't we? But you know what? Today we didn't, and it sounds awesome. So praise the Lord. I like that last, that last song a lot because it indicates that we have a melody, we have a, we have a song in our hearts. And that's how it should be as Christians. We should have that joy of the Lord in our hearts because of what He's done for us and because of His presence in our lives and His blessings. I mean, sometimes I just, you know, I'm just walking at work and the next thing I know I'm just like singing and just happy. You know when it says over and over again in the scriptures, blessed is He, blessed is He. You know what blessed means? Happy is He. Literally out of the Hebrew. Happy is He. Why are we happy? Because we have Christ in our hearts, amen? He's changed our hearts. He's come into our lives and He's our Savior and Lord. So I'm going to start a new book uh, today. Uh, we're going to go through it like I normally do. Uh, I kind of went off a little bit for a while there. Uh, we are looking at serving the Lord, but I think we've touched that topic rather well. Now we're going to get back into God's Word. And, uh, and if you don't mind, I flipped the, I don't know, I think I have it here too. I can do it. Um, we're going to look at um, uh, the book of Hebrews. Do you guys know that um, the Lord loves coffee? Hebrews. <laughs> I saw uh, at a church one time, a big church somewhere in Los Angeles, I went to a concert, I don't know, a Chris Tomlin concert or something, and outside was this gazebo, and apparently the church is large enough where they had a little coffee stand, if you would, and the name on the sign said, He Brews. And I thought, that is so good, right? So, um, I don't know, maybe I might be off a little bit. I don't know if uh, uh, Arabic coffee beans were at dis Jesus' disposal. But anyway, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, written to the Hebrews. Not any other group. Specifically to Hebrew Christians. These are uh, God's people who had received uh, the gospel message. And we know that he came into his own, John chapter 1, and his own received him not. We know that he was uh, uh, overwhelmingly rejected by the nation of Israel, but there were some that received him. And the perfect example of that was his own disciples and others, of course. And then there were those that, who came to Christ when the apostles began to preach the, the good news of the gospel after the day of Pentecost. And we also know that he went into the Gentile world, specifically with Paul. Interesting thing about Hebrews is there's no mention of an author. But I, I tend to lean, and this has also been a matter of discussion for thousands of years, so I don't claim to be a, an expert on anything in that rela in that related to who the author was. But I would believe that the man who in Romans said that he was willing to give his own life for his people's sake that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Paul, I, I believe, and there's a lot of evidence to prove that it's his style of writing. But it doesn't really matter because who ultimately is the author of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And granted, each person who wrote in the Bible, who has a book in the Bible or an epistle, they have their own style. So you can find things like that, but it's not a big deal. So anyway, I'm just going to say in the future, the writer or author of Hebrews. 
said this or that or the other thing. Okay, so we're going to look at this first chapter. It's really not that long, and there's some really important points. So if you don't mind, we'll stand and we'll just kind of do the first chapter. Uh, I'll start by reading the whole thing here with you. It's not long. Love how it reads. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let me just add, he sat down at the right hand uh, of majesty on high because he resurrected from the dead. After making purification for sins. It's known to them that he resurrected, although it's not mentioned. There's a lot of things. Just going to take a second. There's a lot of things in this book because it's written to Hebrews that they already know about. You don't have to explain it all. So it goes on to say that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high and we know that he ever lives to make intercession there as our great high priest, which we'll look into later in the book. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels, or God's angels, worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So let's just pray real quick for the sermon. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time in your word. We pray you lead us and guide us and teach us, Lord, and help us to know more about your son, Jesus Christ, and thereby default in a greater knowledge of who your son is then the greater opportunity we have to trust Him and to have a faith that pleases You and to have a faith that acts upon Your Word and lives for You. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we want to know, Lord. A faith, Lord, that endures and perseveres no matter what we have to go through because we know who You are. We know that You are true. We know that You are faithful. We know, Lord God, that You love us beyond understanding we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. What's the background? Just a little bit of a setup 
to kind of understand what's going on. Hebrew Christians, okay? That's, that's who we were talking about. These were Jews, you know? So how come they're Hebrews? Because Abraham was a Hebrew. That's the only reason why. Their father, Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and of course we know from there, these three rise the 12 tribes, right? And keep in mind that every tribe is a different, has a different name, right? You got Benjamin, you got Judah, Issachar. So I would say, just for a sake of clear understanding, all the tribes are, Israel, are of Israel, right? Just like all the states in the United States belong to America, but not all Americans are Californians. Well, not all Israel are Jews. It's this one tribe. An important tribe because that's where the Lord comes from. Hebrews is a reflection of their ethnicity, if you would, where they come from, Abraham. So this is written to God's people. Through Abraham is how they are known. They spoke Hebrew. It's a language too. So just so we understand. And they were going through the fires of suffering and misunderstandings tests and trials and persecution because they had moved from the old covenant of Judaism to the new covenant with Christ. So that imagine, you know, maybe some of you who uh, may have been raised Catholic may understand a little bit that all of a sudden now you're, you know, you're a Christian in a, in, a, in a different way and sometimes people might put a little, your family and say, well, oh, man, I'll put a little pressure on you or what's that all about or how, can, how dare you move away and so they were, that's what they were experiencing. You know, you were brought up this way. And you could also look at it in another way, too. It, we also come out of the world. So we come from somewhere to the gospel of Christ. Whether you come from Hebrew tradition, it, 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 through, through the Moses' law and understanding of all those things that were part of that nation, or you come from a home that knew nothing about the Lord. You know, I was going to say, you come from a, a, a home that was uh, pagan or heathen. You know, that's the word they use for people that don't know God. They were godless. It doesn't matter where you come from. When God comes and knocks on our hearts and we accept the call and we understand that by faith we receive what He has done for us, we become new creatures in Christ. We become new citizens of another kingdom called heaven. But we all have a past, don't we? Let me just say this. Sometimes we struggle and there are moments and seasons where we have a hard time letting go. Right? I mean, it's who we were for so long. And a lot of the things we do as parents, you know why we do them? Because that's what our parents did. You know? Uh, there's a saying, you can take the Mexican out of Mexico, but you can't take the Mexico out of the Mexican. Pass the jalapenos, please. You don't want ketchup? No, thank you. I'll take some salsa. I just can't get rid of it. So what I want you to do is understand that this is a real struggle. Who you were before Christ is who you were before Christ, and that doesn't necessarily just disappear into thin air. And there's a pressures, uh, culturally speaking, and customs and 
traditions and stuff that are practiced. So, some of them were, because they're now converted to Christianity, there were suffering and persecution and trials and tests, and they were discouraged. This is presumably why the letter was written. They were discouraged. And some of them may have been asking themselves, was this new walk into the Christian faith worth it? Uh, some of them may have been um, asking themselves, which I believe the author is going to answer very clearly, was Christianity superior to the ancient Jewish faith? Well, it's another covenant. There's a new one in Christ, and we do it every time we have the Lord's Supper. He says, this is a new covenant in my blood. It's a new agreement, a new contract that we have, a better one. And they were having a hard time understanding that. Some of them may have been asking, hey, is all this, these hard times and difficulties that we're going through, all this suffering, is it, is it too high a price to pay for salvation in Jesus? Does it really matter? Right? Have we, make a, have we make a, made a mistake, you know, in embracing the truth of the gospel? You know, maybe, maybe there's some kind of a compromise we can make. You know, maybe we can be a little bit Christian and a little bit, you know, Jewish. You know, it's kind of like some people, you know, a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. I mean, what a miserable way to live. Pick one, please. <laughs> right? So... It's not something really new uh, we discover in John's Gospel that when Jesus was preaching and there were disciples that were following him, uh, the lessons or the Word of God or his teachings got kind of heavy for him. And so he says in John 6, if you want to write it down, look at it later, John 6, 67 and 68, then Jesus said to the twelve, well, here's the deal. He was talking to them about they would have to eat his flesh. <laughs> they were like, what? What do you mean eat your flesh? No, he wasn't talking literally. He was talking about partaking of his death, believing in his death, right? Accepting by faith what the atonement meant. They should have known because of all the sacrifices that were performed in the Old Testament. And they, some disciples left. They're like, this is, this is too heavy. And so he says to his disciples, do you also want to leave? And uh, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So they were contemplating leaving this new Christian walk because they had run into difficulties. But it's the same thing that had happened from the very beginning. This is not an easy walk because we're set apart. Because we belong to the Lord. We're walking in light now, not in darkness. See, one of the things that we have to understand is when we become Christians, we literally change kingdoms. We once were in the kingdom of darkness, but now we're in the kingdom of light. We once lived unrighteously, but now we live righteously. We once could care less about the things of God and went after the flesh, but now we, we put the flesh to death and we walk in the Spirit. We once could care less about our cross or didn't even understand what it meant, but Jesus tells us in this side to take our cross and follow him. There has been a transformation and a change, no doubt. But then it's tested, and that's what was going on here. There was another instance, occasion, that uh, 
Jesus uh, offended the crowd and, 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 and they would get boisterous about it. There's that one incident when he asked them if they're going to leave or go away. And, and Peter, as I just read, he, he says, well, where are we going to go? Where do we go now? Uh, you know, that's what his response was. You, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Savior. You are our Lord. And so the Hebrew writer is going to spend the rest of the time in this book building on examples from their own history and then strengthening their faith to show them that Jesus is superior. Or I could just reduce the message to say he's, he's better. He's better. Let's say all that together. Jesus is better than anything. I don't know if you believe that. I hope you do. I'm going to try to convince you through this letter. Jesus is better. So, the writer, who I think is Paul, doesn't really matter. He's going to demonstrate how Jesus is absolutely superior and how the gospel is superior to anything that Judaism had to offer. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus is greater uh, than any religious aspect that Israel may have had in the past because the author is going to point out that his work on earth, he comes first as a mediator. He comes as the, the Savior. They no longer had to offer lambs and goats and sacrifices of animals. He is the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And this is what the author is going to point out for us. So he, Jesus is literally God's right hand. Literally, figuratively, in person. That's what the idea or the mystery of the incarnation shares with us. That God dwelt in a tent of human flesh. No longer in a tabernacle like in the wilderness where God was present with the, uh, with the Jews or with Israel. Remember the wilderness for 40 years? There was the tabernacle. It was made out of, skins of the skins of animals. It was a demonstration. It was a figure of a, that one day a lamb would be offered, a perfect lamb, pointing to Jesus. All those things in the Old Testament are shadows uh, and the reality of the body, the, the substance of those shadows is Jesus. And that's what the Hebrew letter is going to tell us also. And so does the letter to the Colossians, saying all of the feasts, all of the Sabbaths, they're all pointing to Jesus. They're figures in, of Him. They're not as good as Him because they're just shadows of Him. So let's say, for instance, I know uh, how much uh, you ladies love your husbands. And so you see them coming up the sidewalk on a sunny day and you run to Him and you embrace their shadow. Oh, I love you. Oh, you're over here. You don't embrace the shadow of right, Vanessa? You don't embrace Jorge's shadow. Although it looms large, you run and embrace him. Right? Stella, you want? Embrace, embrace the guy. Is that true for the rest of you married and lovebirds? The shadow is just what? Just that. It, it's not the real thing. You're going to embrace the real thing. Jesus is the real deal. And so we embrace him. And so the Hebrews, 
are coming to and are going to learn, the Christian ones here, uh, that Jesus is better than or greater than. So those two words are going to be repeated many, many times in this book. Greater than, better than. And that's why I kind of alluded to the fact that we'll uh, uh, call or we'll address this whole study as Jesus is better. Right? Let me give you a couple examples. In this study, he's greater than the angels, and that's what we're going to see today. In this study, he's greater than all of Moses' glory. In this study, we're going to see that he's greater than the priestly order of Melchizedek. It's because Jesus is the great high priest of a better covenant. In this letter, in this book, we're going to find that the covenant in the blood of Jesus is greater than the covenant of the Old Testament. Jesus is a better revelation than the revelation given to the prophets of old. There's a better country that we're going into than the land of promise given to the Israel. We have a better country whose city and maker is God and builder is God. We have, we have better hope because we have not just those resurrected from the dead, from illness or whatever caused it, but we are resurrected from the, from the, the penalty of sin. We have a resurrected Savior, and the promises are better. So let's just look at the beginning here and see if we can dig a little bit. Long ago, referring to the Old Testament, you know, it's like the beginning of a, some of those stories we read. Once upon a time. See, God's been speaking to people in many different times and in many different ways. Go all the way back to Genesis. Go all the way back to Moses. Go to all the prophets. The major prophets. The minor prophets. God's been talking to people through his people. Throughout time. And uh, in many different ways. Some of them he spoke to them in visions. Some of them he spoke to them in dreams. Some of them he spoke to them literally in a, in, uh, in, by an angel. And or in a what would be a Christophany. Which would be a physical appearance of Jesus before his actual birth. Where Jesus appeared. Like with the three Hebrew children in the fire. They saw a fourth man in there. And he looked like the son of man. That's what it says. So God spoke into us in many ways by our, by our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on and so forth, and by the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi, and you name it, the, all of them, right? Verse 1. Then there's this word, but. What does that word serve as? It serves as a transition. It's like saying, this, this was that, and then... Right? This was that and then now, but now, but now, but, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So, I can send my neighbor to talk to you. I can send my friends to talk to you. Or I can send Sammy. Who has more weight to represent who I am? Jesus, who had always been with the Father from all eternity, he had never known any separation. That's what the, makes the story of the cross and the reality of his death even more profound is that for that split moment as he became the sin offering for the sins of the world, where he became sin for us, 
He cried out from the, from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's never had known separation. But when he became the object of God's wrath and sin fell on him and he, as he absorbed it in his body on our behalf, God had to turn his face away and his back on his only son that would never have happened ever before. What a sacrifice. What a, what a great salvation we have, which we'll read in chapter 2. So the son has spoken to us. Regarding what the Father has to say. The Son. Right? And then it goes on to say, uh, whom He appointed, so the Son, Jesus, is appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also He created the whole world. Let me just say this about the book of Hebrews. A couple of things. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, there are 29 quotes from the Old Testament and 53 allusions. In other words, allusions to stories. Especially in chapter 11 where it says about uh, the different heroes of faith. It doesn't necessarily quote the whole story of those heroes, but it mentions, for instance, all of a sudden, uh, it'll say something about Enoch, or it'll say something about, uh, for instance, Cain and Abel, or it'll say something about Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Samson, and, or Gideon. Those things are mentioned. They're illusions. They're just mentioned about them. So there's 82 references in this book about the Old Testament. And I like to say, and it's been said by greater uh, students of the Bible than myself, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, while the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, because it's the Son that reveals it to us. It comes straight, I don't mean this respectfully, the message comes straight from the horse's mouth. Not that God's a horse, it's in the, it's the phrase. Would you rather get the information direct from the Son? Well, we have Jesus. If there's anything we'd ever want to know about God, Jesus is the one that could communicate to us. Because just like Sammy knows what I have in my kitchen and where the water bottles are, and or if he needs the tongs, or if for some reason he's looking to refill the salt shaker, he knows exactly what cupboard to go to. But if I asked George to go get my salt, he wouldn't know where to start. Because George hasn't been in my presence or in my home enough to be able to tell me. But Jesus has always been with the Father and knows Him in detail and exclusively. And He's the one who has come to give us a message. So that's what this is referring to. So Jesus is greater than the prophets. As great as Daniel is. He's nothing compared to Jesus. Matter of fact, the whole book of Daniel is about Jesus. As great as Ezekiel is, he can't even compare. He's just a mouthpiece. He's just a vehicle. He's just a channel that God used to reveal himself. However, here's the interesting part. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those passages of the prophets. He's the one they spoke of. There's a incident in Luke's gospel where Jesus goes to Nazareth and he uh, sat down in a synagogue to listen to the day-to-day -day sermon on the Sabbath or whenever they worshipped. He said, all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. This is Luke 4.21. And Jesus began to say to them, because he unrolled one of the scrolls, and it happened to be the scroll of Isaiah. 
Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he went on to refer to that passage. And when he finished, he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what Jesus was affirming was he's the one Isaiah, and not only Isaiah, were writing about. Can you imagine the audacity to go into a temple and read it? It would be like if I showed up here today and read out of, I don't know, Malachi, and I said, Today this has been fulfilled, because what I'm saying is I'm the fulfillment of that passage. And guess what they try to do with him? At first they were all astounded and, and amazed, but then as soon as it sank in, they tried to throw him over a cliff. Who do you think you are? Well, he knew who he was, the Son of God. And he was reading from a passage that was prophesying about him and his coming. And he's saying, today it's fulfilled. That's in Luke's Gospel, uh, verse 21 of chapter 4. Then there was another incident at the end of Luke's Gospel in Luke 24. A lot of us know this particular story is the road to Emmaus. This is now after the death of Jesus on the cross. The disciples for three days are like miserable and don't understand and are, are sad because the one they loved is gone and they had so great a hope and promise of what could, what could be with this, the one that's the Messiah, and now he's in a grave. Haven't forgot everything he told them. Three days later, I'm going to rise. Forgot it totally. And so he's walking with some disciples who were mulling over and talking about what happened in Jerusalem a few days earlier. And lo and behold, Jesus walks up to them in Luke 24, verse 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They should have known better. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Well, yeah, if you're reading the scriptures, right. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, and listen to this part, in all the scriptures, the Psalms and the prophets, the things concerning himself. So the words of the prophets were preparation for Christ. Christ's words are ultimate and final. In Christ, in Jesus, their message, in the Old Testament scriptures, find their fulfillment. Apart from Jesus, their words are not intelligible. Apart from Jesus, their words are meaningless. Because then it hasn't been fulfilled. They're empty promises. So then this particular verse that we're looking at, and I'm only in verse 1 and 2 at this point, it goes on to say in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, by his own, uh, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through him whom he, uh, also he created the world. So what else do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the heir of all things. What does that mean? If you have ever received an inheritance, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything that belonged to that person that gave you the inheritance is now yours. Jesus is heir or owns all things. 
I didn't really understand that until one day I, the Lord indicated to me that this really isn't my wallet. You know, when it comes to money, that's when you really get tested. That everything that I may have in here or own is his. He's letting me use it. I'm leasing it. It's, it's being rented out to me for now. Everything. This is who we're talking about. The one who is heir of all things or all things belong to him. All the silver and gold belong to him. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Your house belongs to him. Your children belong to him. The very next breath you take belongs to him. Someone one time so arrogantly said to me because we were talking about and I was trying to emphasize the blessings of this person having a certain degree that afforded him a certain career, that afforded him a certain income and security, and he was proud of himself. And I just simply said, well, I hope you understand and acknowledge that God gave you those gifts and the abilities that you have to be able to have earned that degree. I work with kids with special needs. I know what it means not to have that ability. And I have to struggle with them to learn something small that we all would take for granted. Oh, don't think for one minute the things that you have or the gifts that you have or the breath that you have or the health that you have or anything that you have is yours. And it sure changes the way that you will live and think and go about your day when you know it belongs to God. He can take it for the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So meanwhile, I'm just happy to enjoy what he's given me. Not worried about whether it goes away because I know that he may give me more or then when he takes it away, he's going to teach me to depend on him and I don't need to worry there either or we don't need to. He's the heir of all things. I don't know if you know that. Your DNA is his. I'm going to question him about this ball that I have. How come my DNA makes it happen to where my hair falls out back there? And I look in the mirror and I think I have a lot of hair. And then someone shows me a picture from behind. You got this big old shiny thing. Our DNA is who we are and how we're built. I don't know if you've ever accepted yourself. He made you. Because the other thing that he tells us is that he's the creator of the world. He's the creator of the world. It says it right there. Jesus, the creator of the world. No? He's the heir of all things and the creator. And I think that verse 2 kind of tells us some pretty important things that we should know about. Verse 3 is interesting because he says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Just like the moon reflects the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who we are. That's the kind of light we are. We're a reflection of Christ. But Christ is actually the light. The beam, if you would. He's the light beam, if you would. The radiance of the glory of God. You see Jesus, you see the glory of God. You're standing in the glory of God. That's the first uh, John chapter 1 says, we beheld him full of grace and glory. You want to know about the glory of God? Learn about Jesus. And the interesting thing is the next part. Now, one thing is the radiance. That is that he shines the glory of God. Remember the transfiguration when they went up to the mountain and 
for a split second, it's like he would have taken off his mask, if you will, and his, the glory of God shined, and then he's like he put his mask back on, his flesh. They saw the glory of God for a, for a bit, for a minute, as they say. And they were all, oh my God, let's worship. You know, of course, Moses was there, and Elijah was there, and they all, uh, Peter is the first one to say, hey, let, let's build tabernacles for all three. And then a voice comes from heaven saying, oh no, hear ye him, this is my beloved son, referring to Jesus. The only tabernacle that's worthy to be built is for Jesus because he's God's son. He's God in human flesh. What an incredible thing that God would reduce himself to a human to relate to us. The God and creator of the universe brought himself down, humbled himself and became one of us. But that's even a greater thing to contemplate because then he's the only one that could truly say to us, I understand. Because he was one of us. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We're going to look at that in Hebrews chapter 4. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to have joy and even sometimes sadness. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how oft would I, like a mother hen, have gathered you unto myself, but you would not receive me on the day of my visitation. He was rejected just like we're rejected. This is the Son of God. This is the one that we're going to look at and we're looking at in the book of Hebrews. The one where I'm still stuck on chapter 2, verse 2. I wanted to go through the whole chapter today. I'm going to wrap it up, but I wanted to go one more verse. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And here's an interesting thing. The exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. I'll explain that in a minute. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So I learned, and again, I can't take credit for it because I learned this from my pastor and I never forgot it. The idea here is that Jesus is the proof coin. Does anybody know anything about mints? There's a coin, there's a stamp, if you would, that makes all, and there's a proof coin that comes out the first one that, that they want to make sure it looks exactly like the stamp. Jesus is the proof coin. He's the exact image. He's the exact nature, imprint of God. Right? He's the exact likeness of God. He's the exact representative for uh, for us of God, but in human flesh. Isn't that crazy? I used to collect coins. You know, any imperfections that devaluates it, even though the weight is the same, so the print, this is, you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. And then this verse speaks to us about that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Huh. He upholds the universe. It's kind of leads itself into that he maintains it. You know, uh, being a pastor here for many years, you know, this building just doesn't happen to hold together by itself. You know, we already have an issue with an air conditioner, right? We know that if uh, someone didn't come and vacuum and clean and wipe down, that this thing place would be filthy. Or that all of a sudden things begin to break down. Lights need, light bulbs need to be changed. New paint needs to be put on. Sounds like over here we need to change something in the wood. Maintenance uphold something. So Jesus is the one who is upholding 
what does it say? The universe. Well, I like to say, and it, it's also a passage in Colossians, that Jesus is the, um, the glue that holds everything together. There's a super glue, if you will. Scientists don't understand how come molecules don't just go fly off by themselves. But they stay in a rotation, orbiting, you know, protons and so forth. They come up with a word, they call it the atomic glue. That's Jesus. Everything is held together by and maintained by him. How's your life being holding together? How's your life holding together? Well, it's holding together because of him. Wouldn't it be wise then to run to him who holds the whole universe? Do you think that your problem would cause him to fall off his throne? No. He upholds everything. That's who we serve. Amen? Makes you want to know him more, I think. I hope. It makes me want to draw closer to him. Because everything I've read so far explains everything gives us security the truth sets us free we don't need to have any fears or doubts but there can be confidence because the Lord builds with us a relationship of integrity that's what we have in Christ we have a, a relationship where there's respect where there's trust where there's love and that's what we, our hearts desire. And we have a relationship with someone who is trustworthy, who is faithful, and who loves us beyond measure in what he did for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's who we serve. So wouldn't that change our outlook and perspective on life? Wouldn't it make us different to know that one who in the book is called the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Yeah. Ask him. And you shall receive. You have not because you ask not. How often do you go to him and say, hey, this is what's going on. I tried to fix it myself, but it got worse. Well, I'm not too sure what to do with this or that or the other thing. But here it is. I lay it at your feet. You take control of my life. Here's the steering wheel. It looks like you're doing a pretty good job. After all, the universe that he upholds is the one that gives you life. Right? <laughs> it's too simple not to believe it. And it's too profound to walk away and dismiss it. Turn on. Turn it on in here. Think. Don't believe everything that they're telling you or people would have you think is the truth. Don't accept what everyone says. Go into God's word. Go into your prayer closet. Ask God for wisdom. And walk with him. And I can guarantee you he'll never let you down. Because you were created for a purpose. He has a reason and a rhyme for you personally 
and also not just for you and your family, but for a, to be a blessing in this body of believers. I don't know how we could read these things and just dismiss them and say, oh, it's just some ancient book. That ancient book, all of its prophecies have come to be fulfilled exactly at the time that he chose them to be fulfilled. And there are more things that are going to come on the horizon that we're going to see that are going to fulfill God's word. Because God is so in control of things, the technical term or theological term for that, he's sovereign. He's absolutely in control of everything that he wrote history before it happens. It's happening right before our eyes right now in Israel. And be what you may think on who's there or what's happening. All I know is that there's a place in the same place where Abraham built an, uh, an altar. And there's a state there called Israel. And there's a whole world of fire right now. Just like the prophet said. Look up. Jesus said, our redeemer, our redemption is drawing near. So again, this whole, and I'm just going to stop there after, chapter, uh, after verse 3. <laughs> again, what am I trying to say? Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the answer you're looking for. He's the solution to everything. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, some interesting passages here, Father. I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts and reveal yourself to us personally so that we might understand and not be confused at all about who you are, what you have claimed, that we would accept it by faith. And that faith is what pleases you and that faith is what connects us to you and how it is that you pour your spirit onto us because then we become yours. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're yours and then because of that, Lord, you have rights over our lives. But there's also blessings that flow from that. And a purpose that we talked about because of who you are. Thank you, Father. We ask that you continue to be with us in every way in our lives. But most importantly, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you, knowing who you are. And by that, automatically... We discover who we are. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But we have a Savior who loved us so much that He gave Himself for us. He paid the penalty of our sins so that we might be free from guilt and condemnation and have the hope of eternal life. That's what we know. And that's what we're thankful for. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. So, we're going to take our offering now. If whoever is going to help out. And then afterwards we'll have our praise team come back up and dismiss us. Don't forget we have um, our fall family festival this Saturday. We're going to um, arrive here early to prepare. So I know it says five here. I would hope if those of you that are going to help us would arrive a little sooner than that. Probably around 3.34. Okay. That's for the, and then we do need candy if you can help us out with that. We can use, use some candy as we prepare for this event where our objective is to meet our neighbors and most importantly have them meet us and they can see the love that we have in Christ and give us the opportunity to share with them the message of Christ. Amen. No, we're not celebrating Halloween.
It's not even on Halloween. But we are taking advantage of the fact that this is the time where people are going to be aware of candy. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And so we're going to bring them on campus. It's the time, at least in the past, when I've done it, where I've spoken to more people than any other time of the year. At least, because that's what I do. I walk around, I talk to families, talk to people, I ask them if they need prayer, I ask them if they have a home church, I invite them here if they don't, I ask them if they need prayer again. So we have a time for them to get to know us. Amen? They come into our house because they don't always invite us into theirs. Yesterday there was a, guy, a lady who slammed her door on me. <laughs> I was just coming to the front and I was like, hey, I just want to... Bam! Not even said a word. I thought, wow, okay. Maybe her enchiladas were overheating. I don't know. <laughs> Let's pray for the offering. Heavenly Father, thank you. And we just ask you to bless our offering, Lord. We're going to give back to you just a small portion of what it is that you have given to us. And we pray that you could use it to extend the gospel here at this corner. Bless, Father, the giver, and bless those that are going to decide on how it's going to be used. And our prayer, Lord, is that it always be for your honor and glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.